Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Why do we and the, and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Let's pray. Well, Father, I'm grateful for this particular interaction. I think there's much to learn from it. Uh, It it not only proves that um, the community of faith has not come very far, uh, but I think also that it, it, it makes us aware of ourselves and helps us to be cautious in the way that we consider ourselves and others. So I pray that you would teach us this morning. Lord, also, um, we pray that you would be with Isaac, who um, is still in the ICU, and, and there's some challenges that they've discovered, but he is recovering still. Um, but Lord, it's, it's mostly his pain. And so, Lord, by your grace, I just pray that you would, Lord, I pray that you'd take away his pain and that he could recover um, without that haunting him. Pray that you would grant him your strength as he continues to um, just be in a bed all the time. And uh, especially for him, who is so outgoing and just always ready to roll. I pray that this time, Lord, he would just hear your voice. That you'd give him peace. Lord, his family as well. Pray for Al Cummings, Lord, that um, his infection would continue to um, decrease, Lord and that he would be healed, and that he would be back with us soon. And um, Lord, so many others, just watch after them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead and be seated. If you are new today, um, it is our custom, we'll we'll talk about a little bit later again, uh, to go through the scriptures in an an expository manner, verse by verse, uh, through one book at a time. That's what we're doing this morning. Um, and just because we go verse by verse doesn't mean we, we do a lot of verses. So I know that this morning it's four verses. But I will have you know, on a Thursday night a few weeks ago, I think I did like eight chapters, and it's some kind of record. Uh, we probably won't do eight chapters in Matthew on a Sunday, um, but we might end up doing a chapter on a Sunday, but this is not that Sunday. So... Um, I'm in no rush to get through uh, Matthew's uh, gospel. I want to learn as much from Christ as I can, and I want to be able to give as much from the text to all of you that I can, all right? And if you don't like it, you can tell me, but it probably won't change things too much, okay? <laughs> We're going to honor uh, the word as much as we can. So let's, let's get into the text. Again, verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we... And the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Do not fast. Now, the disciples of John, 
Uh, that is John the Baptist. These are the guys that have continued with John, even though John the Baptist, when he, had, when he saw Christ, he said, look, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Now, at least two of them left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. Uh, that was Andrew and that was John, okay? But some others had stayed with him. Well, at least uh, at that time. Does anybody know where John the Baptist is at this point in the narrative? He's in prison. He's in prison. And uh, what he had done, which we'll talk about later, is he confronted Herod for seducing his sister-in-law from his own brother and then taking her to himself. And so John, uh, he dared challenge uh, and rebuke Herod and then... um, that didn't go well, so now John the Baptist is in prison. So um, we will talk more about the Herods later. They were a savory bunch of people. But in John's absence, his disciples have no rabbi. They have no teacher. So uh, what they've been doing is observing Jesus, and they've probably been following him at a distance. Okay? And during their observation, though, they noticed that Jesus and his disciples not only avoided the traditional biweekly fast, they were caught feasting, heaven forbid. Okay? That's, some of the, that's one of the things about the life of Christ that I love, uh, is that he was always eating, always eating. And uh, I think because of that, we call this calorie chapel. Uh, this church likes to eat. And um, some of you like... Um, I don't know, there's all kinds of different diets, like the latest. What's the latest now? There's keto, uh, there's the caveman one, um, but they don't call it caveman. What do they call it? Paleo. It's caveman. And um, whatever. I don't care what you eat. And just don't impose what you eat on me. Um, Whatever. So both the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they fasted twice a week. They did it on Mondays, and they did it on Thursdays. But understand, they didn't fast twice a week because the law of Moses or the law of God required it, okay? God only required that the Jews fast one day out of the entire year. Does anybody know what day that was? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the only required fast that God imposed on the people of of Israel. They were allowed to fast out of the times, but there was no required. But this particular tradition of fasting twice a week developed well before the time of Christ so that by this time it was so entrenched in their, you know, their religious culture that if you didn't fast twice a week, you were less than pious. You were actually looked down upon. So when the disciples of John saw Jesus' disciples not fasting, okay, what they saw was a lack of religious devotion. And so the question actually comes with sort of a tone of, you know, how could you, how could you be the Messiah? How could you be the Lamb of God if you and your disciples aren't fasting like the other devout Jews? Shouldn't the Messiah and his followers be, you know, setting the standard? Shouldn't they be the greatest example? Okay. Now, for me, when I read this in, in, in light of the historical context and the scriptures, it's interesting and it's baffling. It's interesting to me how people think they can have greater piety or superior spirituality by doing more than what the scriptures teach or require. It's interesting. 
Most of all because it implies that the instruction found in Scripture is insufficient to make someone fully pleasing to God. Any insufficiency in Scripture, if if there was such a thing, it, it would indeed require that we invent some spiritual discipline, some practice, like fasting twice a week, to make up for where the Bible lacked. Fascinating thing about this is that those who practice, you know, these extracurricular activities do not say that the scriptures are insufficient to make them fully pleasing to God, but in practice, that's exactly what they do, okay? And their comment to Jesus demonstrate that. And you see, no one in the beginning, you know, sets out to make up for the insufficiency of scripture by some discipline. These things develop over time, and they typically happen over time in a religious community by some well-respected religious leader. And before long, that religious discipline of that person, like fasting twice a week, it becomes the standard practice, at least for those who are serious about their spirituality. Okay, you get it? And then what happens over time, exactly what happened in our text, people who keep these spiritual disciplines, they become critical of those who don't, right? That's what's happening. And it happens today in the church. And this is what is baffling to me. We elevate ourselves because of our tradition, which is pride. And we look look down on others for not having our tradition, even though Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. You guys know that text? All right. And we do all of this contrary to God's word. We keep a tradition not found in scripture And then we violate the clear teaching of Scripture to keep our tradition. We are some sick people, okay? What is wrong with us? I mean, God clearly condemns self-righteousness as pride, okay? All who are proud at heart, the psalmist says, are an abomination to God. And Jesus condemns the traditions of men on multiple occasions. And yet, we insist on keeping our traditions with pride. You know, if you don't believe me, just toss Advent out of the wrong church's calendar, and they'll toss you out of the church. Just as an experiment, and, and it's okay. okay I, it was after four years of Bible college, I didn't know what Advent was. Who here doesn't know what Advent is? I love you guys. It's like, I like it. <laughs> Every God-fearing Christian keeps Advent. Didn't you know? <laughs> Even though there's not a single Bible verse that talks about Advent at least the keeping of it, okay? Now, if you practice Advent at your home, okay, prior to Christmas, because you want to teach your children the historical narratives leading up to the birth of Christ, I would encourage you to keep doing it. Just don't condescend on the families, okay, who do not. Now, my story is, like I said, after four years of Bible college, having the Bible as my textbook, uh, I did not know what Advent was, And so I was serving at a church in Wyoming, and my senior pastor uh, called me in his office, and he said, hey, I'd like you to light one of the Advent candles, and I want you to do it with some of the youth, and then read the appropriate passage. And my question was, what is Advent? And the look on his face was precious, because being a traditional old-school pastor, Advent was just something that you do, and it was something that everybody knew except one of the pastors. And uh, so he had to graciously walk me through what Advent was and and then how I was to do this candle thing. But but in my mind, I was thinking, 
what else is coming that I don't know about? And there are a lot of traditions, a ton of them, okay, that have been uh, developed throughout church history. In fact, many of them, we don't even know their origin, but we keep them as if they're gospel. Very strange to someone like me, okay? So interesting stuff. Um, yeah, it's most interesting that we would violate God's word for the sake of our traditions. Now, a question to ask, and it's, it's applicable to the context here because there's, there's this issue of trying to get people in conformity, okay? So let's suppose that I buckle to someone's criticism for not keeping their tradition. And then because of that, I start keeping their tradition. Who have I pleased? Have I pleased God or have I pleased man? I've pleased man. And if, if it's man that I seek to please, who is my God? That doesn't sound good to me, okay? We know here at Calvary Chapel, we do things a certain way. You've noticed if you've been here for a little while. Uh, and by that, I mean we have a routine. We have a routine. For example, uh, as we did this morning, we stand when we read the Word of God together. And we do that. And I like this custom. Notice my choice of words there. I like this custom because it gives special attention to God's Word. And we see it practiced in 1 Kings 8 and Nehemiah 8. But this practice is not prescribed anywhere in the law of God or in the word of God like the New Testament. That is, it's not commanded. It's practiced, but it's not prescribed. Okay, we only see it even practiced a couple times. Okay. But it would be self-righteous of me to criticize or judge another church for not doing the same, who might, by the way, have the same reverence for God's word as I do, but they show it in a totally different way. I could go in my air of piety and say, why doesn't your church stand up when they read the word of God like we do? I could get there, couldn't I? Just like the disciples of John, okay? So we need to be very careful with how we view others when it comes to how we do things here. If we do something in addition, and we do, to what is clearly taught in scripture, we have no right to elevate ourselves or criticize others for not doing it. It is God's word alone. Isn't that one of the, uh, the, the solas of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura, God's word alone, that is sufficient to make us well-pleasing to God. There is no tradition, okay, that can make one church better than another if they are both obeying the scriptures. Let me remind you of what Paul said. Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration. Inspiration in the Greek is theopanoustos. It means to be literally breathed out by God. All scripture is given by or is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. You'll be complete in yourself, that is spiritually, and you'll be fully equipped to do good works out there. So you'll be complete in here and you'll be ready for anything out there. The word of God is perfectly capable of doing all of that, okay? The disciples of John, and I believe many today need to be reminded that there's no tradition of man that can make you more spiritual and thus more pleasing to God than the scriptures can. If we are abiding in God's word, we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are 
complete. We're well-pleasing to him. And no tradition can improve on that. Not a single one. Back to our text. So these disciples of John, they come to Jesus and they essentially say, why aren't you guys like us? Right? Isn't that happening? Why aren't you like us? Because by the way, we got it going on. We know what we're doing. That's the error in all of this. So Jesus responds. He said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, in the illustration, Jesus is the bridegroom. His disciples are the friends of the bridegroom. Now, at a wedding, a wedding feast, especially a Jewish wedding feast of this time, people did not come somber okay, and fasting. They were smiling. They were festive. And the reason is, is because it would be inappropriate to come to an occasion like this and throw a wet blanket over it. It would dishonor the bride, the groom, and their families. It would just be completely inappropriate. It was during this occasion that the groom and his friends, they're celebrating together. They're happy for the groom. They're happy that he's found his wife, and he can now get on with his life as God intended. But after the festivities were over, you see, the groom then enters into a new phase of life. He is, as he ought to be, taken away from his friends and joined to his wife, the two become one flesh. Haven't we heard that someplace? They become a distinct society from all others. Okay, the two do not become five, six, and seven, and eight. It's not the combining of two families. It's not the combining of the, the bride's friends and the groom's friends. It's two people becoming a brand new society, independent of all other societies. That's the way God intended it. This isn't premarital counseling, but anyway. After their union was established... The days of just hanging out with the groom are over. The groom is no longer available at all hours of the day to do whatever the guys want. Okay, he now has real responsibility. Okay, he now has a dominion that he's to provide for, to care for, and all of those things. And so it was after the wetting that this reality would dawn upon the friends of the groom. And now it's a time to grieve. Okay, the boys just can't get back together as they used to. Okay. So they can grieve then, but not during. Now, according to the illustration, Jesus, the bridegroom, was currently with his friends, the disciples. So there was no reason to fast, okay? This is the time that they're learning from the Messiah of Israel. He's with us. In fact, he's God with us, okay? These are happy times. Jesus was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was commanding the winds and the waves, Would that ever solicit sadness? It should not, okay? This was no time to fast. This was a time of excitement. It would have been inappropriate to fast at this particular time. But that day was coming when Jesus would be taken from his friends. He would be betrayed, abandoned, falsely accused, beaten, and then murdered on a cross. Sound like an occasion for grieving? That's it right there, okay? That would be appropriate, and they did. I... I can't imagine that the first thing on their mind after Jesus was betrayed, that they ate until he rose from the dead. What do you guys think? I think the last thing they were thinking about was food. Yeah. So the first reason that Jesus gives for the disciples not fasting like John's disciples and the Pharisees is that it would be inappropriate. The second is more to the point. It just wouldn't work. Jesus says no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made 
worse. So only unshrunk, or I'm sorry, only shrunken cloth can be used to patch cloth that is already shrunken. How many of you guys still patch your clothes? There's a few of you. About the same as first service, there's a lot more people here. How many millennials patch their own clothes? How many millennials know what a patch is? <laughs> All right, I'm just, just checking. The unshrunk patch, okay, will tear away from the old garment. He says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Wineskins are nasty. It's a whole animal. They cut the head and the feet off, and then they tie knots in the, the limbs, and then they use the neck of the animal as the drinking spout. And they are very careful to tan it just right, okay? And then they put new wine into that new wineskin, and they drink out of that puppy. Um, I'm glad things have changed. <laughs> but I just know that one day I'm going to be in the Middle East or Africa, and somebody's going to hand me one of these, and I will drink out of it. I will. I will. And I'll have plenty of antibiotics with me, just in case. So, so the point here is that new wine is in the process of fermenting, which increases the pressure in whatever contains it. Okay? So an old wineskin, though, it's dried up and it's brittle. So if you fill it with new wine that's still fermenting, it's going to put pressure on that brittle container and it can't endure it, so it breaks open. And then what happens is you lose all of your wine and you lose your wine skin. So what does all this mean in the context? Well, in these two illustrations, the unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent both what is new okay, and different. And this naturally refers to Jesus and his teaching. The old garment and the old wineskin must represent religious tradition because that's the question that the disciples of John were asking. They were asking a question in reference to religious tradition. Okay? In the illustration, the unshrunk cloth and the shrunken cloth, like new wine and old wineskins, they are not compatible. They can't be mingled without one doing damage to the other. So whatever is new, Jesus is saying, will either damage or destroy the old. So Jesus and what he teaches, he's saying, it is incompatible with your human tradition, no matter how good that tradition might be. Now, is there something wrong with fasting twice a week, just in itself? There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is saying that me and what I'm teaching is not compatible with that, okay? If someone takes what Jesus actually teaches and they try to mingle it with human tradition, neither will function consistently because here Jesus is saying they're mutually exclusive. They're a danger to one another. They cannot conform to each other. In fact, the teaching of Christ will always do damage to what is not compatible with it. And if people mingle them together, they will either compromise the teaching of Christ or they'll compromise their tradition. But what happens historically, sadly? It's the word of Christ that gets compromised. That's right. Just as it did among the first century Jews. It happens with us today. You see, though, Jesus, he did not come to conform to the marching orders of man and his traditions. Right? He didn't come for that. Jesus came, the scriptures say, Jesus said, I've come to do all those things that please my father, John 8, 29. And God has no traditions. 
You see, the word tradition means to be handed down, and nobody handed anything down to God. He's the one that gives, and he breathes it out into his word, and it's not tradition. It's his word. It's his command. Jesus came not to fulfill tradition, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew 5.17. He wasn't here to please man by fitting in. He came to exalt God's law and to make it honorable, Isaiah 42.21. And I think most importantly, Jesus did not come to be relevant by doing what man does. I think this is the greatest error of modern evangelicalism, to make the gospel relevant to man, to make God relevant to man, which just ends up making God in our image. I think it's ugly because we're sinful, and I think it's dangerous, okay? Jesus came to bring every man into conformity to him, to make man relevant to God through repentance and faith. When we change that around, we end up changing the gospel, okay? And we start winning people to a community that is not God's community, okay? Repentance is a must, And repentance always changes us toward God, okay? And then once we come to him, he begins to transform us. All of the the damage done to the image of God through the fall is then being repaired by the spirit of God through redemption. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Guys, we don't want God in our image, amen? We don't want him relevant to us. Look at the mess we've already made. We want to become relevant to God and we have to do that through repentance and faith. That's what Jesus came doing. He came demanding that man be relevant to God. So he didn't come to join our little club, though we would love him to. There would just be less demands on us, right? Because we would make up the rules. We must join him. Now, there are uh, some interpreters, and they make some serious errors when they come to this passage. It's usually made by uh, dispensationalists, okay? And what they do is they say that the old garment... And the old wineskins represent the old covenant, and the new garment and the new wine represent the new covenant, and that Jesus has come to install the new and get rid of the old. Well, if that's true, then Jesus is not answering the question that was asked by John's disciples. You see, they were not asking about the law or the old covenant. They were asking about a tradition not found in the law or the covenant, okay? If Jesus' illustration were talking about the new covenant replacing the old covenant, it'd be a fine answer, just not to that question, okay? It's not fitting here in the text. And if someone were to interject at that moment with that idea, the disciples of John would say, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not what we're asking, okay? So we want to stick to the context itself. If we come to the conclusion that it's about the new covenant and the old covenant, What we're doing is we're forcing a foreign concept into the text. But the disciples of John were asking about a tradition, not about the covenant. So we want to be careful. Now, if you want an argument for the, what some call the abrogation of the Old Testament because of the new, that argument is found elsewhere, like in much of Romans, uh, most of Galatians, uh, parts of Ephesians and Colossians, and almost all of the book of Hebrews. So you don't need this little section of scripture to make that point. You have entire books that will make that for you. Amen? But let's not impose that here. We don't need Jesus' discussion here to make our case. We need the context to speak for itself. So a question. Uh, what does this mean for us today? This whole discussion, this interaction. I think there's a few things. 
First, we should be very careful establishing religious traditions that are not given to us from God's word. I think we should be careful. There's no man-made tradition that Jesus compliments in the Bible. I think that we should think about that. Not a single one that he compliments. There's usually only condemnation for it. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels that I know of where Jesus provides a gentle response to the issue of tradition. And he's probably being nice because the disciples of John are involved. You guys, when he starts talking to the Pharisees about tradition, it's not diplomatic. It's not nice. Okay, Matthew 15, Mark 7, we'll get there. Here in Matthew 9, Jesus basically says, no thank you, it would be inappropriate, and it just wouldn't work. But with the Pharisees, it's, it's nuclear, okay? It's just, it's exciting too, okay? This whole thing also teaches us that we should not look down on others for not doing what we do, especially when God has not clearly stated it in his word. Now, admittedly, there are things we do in the context of our services here that are not clearly stated in the scriptures, but we must do something. For example, last week, I mentioned Acts 2.42. It's part of our philosophy of ministry. It should be the philosophy of every ministry. Okay? It says, And they, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The church was steadfast in all of these things. Well, that's not just what they did. Okay? These things are actually commanded by Christ, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's reinforced later by the Holy Spirit in Acts 20, verse 27. We have 2 Timothy 4, 2. There's other places. So the apostles' doctrine is to be taught. It is to be obeyed. It's all to be incorporated. You see, the question is, how exactly we do, how, how exactly do we do that? Because not everybody does it the same. How do we do it? There's something else we know from Scripture that these things were done corporately on Sundays. And then throughout the week, house to house, we see that in Acts 2.46 and Acts 20, verse 7 and verse 20. It's implied in 1 Corinthians 16.2, but we don't know all the details that bring it all together. You see, Paul and the other apostles, they didn't you know, write out every detail of what our services should look like. And this is where tradition, which is man's opinion on how to do things, has crept into the church. So how do we, how do we solve the problem? Well, many people have said, we just need to be more like the early church. But that begs another question. Which early church are you referring to? Which one? You see, the statement assumes that every church in the early church did the same thing. But if you've read any church history book, you know that that is not the case. It's just not the case. In fact, church history tells us that there, there are a lot of different ways that each church did things. And as time progressed, there were these arguments over what was the best way to conduct services on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. Some in the church believed that all the churches needed to be on the same page. But which page should they be on? Of course, that created a real problem because there's no page in the Bible to turn to for those kinds of details. So which page did they turn to? The human page. (laughs) Second Opinions, chapter (laughs) 5. They had no choice but to turn to one of the traditions or the other. But because people think their tradition is better than everyone else's tradition, and because everybody looks down on everyone else that holds a different tradition, there was unnecessary and ungodly division in the churches. So what we did was we repeated the sins of the Pharisees who we are so hard on. 
who we spend so much time condemning when we look at the scriptures. Yeah. The problem is we're still commanded to be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. So how do we do that? Well, I'm not really sure, but I know how to solve the problem. We are a community of grace. Amen? And we should just show grace to others who don't fill in the blanks the same way that we do, especially if they are continuing steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. They're just doing it in a different way. You guys, as I have looked over the scriptures for the last 20-some years, I don't think it's really about how we do it. I think it's that we actually do it, that we actually do it. I don't have much conviction about, you know, the order of service, about the fine details between one thing or another. Otherwise, we'd have a liturgy, but there's no liturgy in the Bible, okay? But I do have conviction about the quality of things in our service. You know, the teaching of the word, for example, it must be taught in an expositional manner. It doesn't always have to be systematic, by which I mean verse by verse, but it must be expositional. You see, God intended for his word to be exposited because it's the only safeguard against the Bible being used as someone's subtext. It's the only way to avoid it. And even then it can't be completely avoided because there's people like me teaching the word, okay? We're broken, (laughs) we're not perfect. But we do expect it here that the word be exposited, that we be teaching the best we can what the original thought and meaning was of the original author. You guys don't need my thoughts. That's not the word of God. The word of God is the original thought intended by the author. Okay. Also, our worship songs, they must be theologically accurate and they must be glorifying to God. The reason is anything else would be about us and we can quickly make everything about us. Okay. And if it's about us, it doesn't honor God. Okay. It would be something other than worship. Now, should our singing come before the teaching of the word or after the teaching? Yes. That was a response from somebody in first service. It's totally a matter of preference. You get it? Should we come to the Lord's table every Sunday or every first Sunday of the month? Jesus said, as often as you do it. That's the instruction. He didn't say every Sunday. He didn't say the first Sunday of the week. could take it the second Sunday. It's just a matter of preference. The scriptures aren't specific. So we should hold our opinions lightly and graciously. Now, for the sake of order and consistency, you know, we do things in a certain way here on Sunday morning, but not because we think it's superior or more spiritual. We really don't. We think it's practical. It's practical. But we have to constantly guard ourselves from thinking that what we do here at Calvary Chapel makes us better. It doesn't. Okay, especially when it comes to things that aren't clear in the word. And we shouldn't look down on others for doing things differently, for sure. We must do all that the scriptures tell us to do, but where the scriptures are silent or they're not clear, we must be gracious to one another. We have to leave room for liberty. It's been said this way, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. What's not said here is what it implies, statement comes from a man named Rupert. He was a Lutheran theologian. And this statement came out of conflict between many different groups and denominations a long time ago. And guess what? It's still appropriate today. Okay. We cannot compromise the scriptures, but there's wiggle room 
in between things, all right? And to be honest, I'm thankful that it's there. Let's go ahead and pray. Stand up if you would. Another custom we have, and we're, no, we're not better for it. Well, Lord Jesus, we, we love your word, and we want to do all that we can to abide by it. And we also, we love you, and we want to obey you. But Lord, there's some areas where it's just unclear exactly how to execute all of that stuff. And so, Lord, we would pray that by your spirit, um, we could fill in the blanks in a healthy way. But more importantly, Lord, that we would be like the church as you intended, that we would be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers, that we would worship you in spirit and truth as you intend. And Lord, we also pray that as we do things, as we see that we ought, as we believe we're led, that we would allow others in other places to be led differently and that we would not look down our noses at them, Lord, but we would be humble. And in fact, Lord, if those other groups are steadfast in the things of your word, help us to rejoice that they're doing that, that our God is glorified by them and that your word's being followed. So Lord, help us to be gracious and help us to grow in it, Lord. So Lord, I thank you for my church family and I just pray that you would just continue to be with us. Help us along the way, Lord, and you'll fix it all when we're face to face with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Lord bless you guys. Enjoy this day.